I want you to think back when you were young. It might be difficult, but think back to the question when you're a child, when you were asked, which everybody was asked, what do you want to be when you grow up? Think about that question. Most, if not all of us, respond something like, I want to be a movie star or a rock star or an athlete or an astronaut. Something along the lines of a career in the spotlight. Not many of us would say janitor or maid or a door operator at a, at a fancy hotel, a house cleaner. Yet these are honorable jobs, but they're jobs of service. And they're not what what we deem as great jobs. It's not how we see great things. We're inclined toward greatness from a very young age, but it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. It continues on. Our hearts are continually drawn towards greatness. We argue over, over who is the GOAT. That's the acronym for greatest of all time for you, those who don't know. But the GOAT in every category, right? In basketball, was it LeBron? Was it Kobe? Was it Jordan? Or football, was it Peyton Manning or Tom Brady or Joel Montana? In, in every category, you throw your name out there of, of the one who you think is the greatest of all time. And then you argue about it. Who is the best? Jesus addresses that desire for greatness in the passage we're going to read this morning. But surprisingly, surprisingly, he never says don't pursue it. Actually, he wants us to pursue greatness. He wants us to be great. But in his definition of great. So he redefines it. He redefines that definition of greatness. And he, and he flips it on, his, his, on its head and then he says, pursue that kind of of greatness, true greatness. See, we need, deeply need to be reoriented to that kind of greatness, Jesus' definition. Because the greatness that we pursue is far, far too often like the world's definition of greatness. But true greatness comes through humility shaped by the cross. True greatness comes through humility shaped by the cross. Humility is the key to greatness. Jesus says you can't be great without it. You can't. And unfortunately, we're not, we're not too fond of, of the word humility. We know we need it, but we just don't like it. We... we we sulkingly find our way to, to admit that, that we need it or like, I, okay, I'll, I'll be humble. I'll, I'll be humble this time. I'll, I'll do it because I, I know I, I need to do it. But the truth is, humility is freeing. It is freeing. Tim Keller says there's nothing more relaxing than humility. It's because a humble person accepts life as a gift. It knows that it doesn't all depend on them. 
They don't feel that weight of everything depending on whether or not they're doing a good job. And there's a quick definition by C.S. Lewis, which many of you may have heard. But humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking about yourself less. It's just a quick working definition that kind of captures the idea of humility. You are not the lifeline for success at your work, in your home, your marriage, your pursuits. And that's freeing. That's very freeing. Pride, the opposite of humility, says, says my kids are great and they succeed because I'm great. I, I just, I kind of got this parenting thing down. And it's pretty easy for me, actually. That's what pride would say in that situation. But pride also says, my kids are disobedient because I'm not a good parent. They're, they're this way because I keep messing up. It's my fault. See, th- that's also pride. That's pride because, because both situations, both parents are, are connecting their ability and their success to, to other people's actions. And now, whether they succeed or they fail, it comes back to how I'm doing. Both of those are pride. But humility would say, thank, thank the Lord for their success. Thank him for their success. And the other one, God, wow, do I need your grace. <laughs> Clearly, look at these kids. I need your grace, Lord. That's, that's a humble heart. That's a, that's a humility sees things. It's not a connection to who I am, my identity, by, by others' successes or failures, even if I'm in charge of those, those others. And it frees us up. It frees us up to serve, to truly be great. We're going to see that in the passage this morning. So read with me. We're going to be in Mark 9. We're going to read verses 30 through 50. I'll read them all the way through. Verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another, about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Verse 38, John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, 
Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, oh, I pray that by the power of your Spirit, you would help us. Help us this morning to see clearly Jesus' words on true greatness, on what it means to be humble. We know we need to do it. We, we, may, we may not understand it. We may not like it. Uh, but Lord, I pray that you would help us to see better, to see clearer. That humility truly is freeing, that it frees us up to serve, to be servant of all and last of all as you've called us to be. We need your grace to do so. So I pray that, that this morning, uh, by the power of your spirit, that you would, you would begin to work in our hearts to understand that humility is at the key of true greatness. Oh, and we need you for this, Lord. So be, be with us this morning. Help us to hear, help us to see, open up our hearts uh, to receive your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, Mark has been taking us through the journey of who is Jesus? Who, who is this guy who teaches with authority and does miracles? In last chapter, chapter 8, he tells us explicitly that Jesus is the Messiah upon Peter's confession. And the questions continue. Who is this Messiah and what has he come to do? What has he come to accomplish? Jesus tells his disciples to suffer and to die. And they obviously don't take it well because that's not what they thought the Messiah was to come to do. That's not the picture they, they had in their heads. But ever since this declaration, ever since Peter's confession and Jesus confirming of this is who he is, we see the trajectory for the rest of Mark's gospel, the last week before the crucifixion, heading towards Jerusalem, heading towards the cross. That's the chronology. That's the path, passage by passage, getting to Golgotha, the place of the cross. And as we read, Jesus tries a second time to tell them, why he is here, and what the Messiah has come to do, and how that shapes their life. That shapes their discipleship, specifically in humility. So we're going to look at this text this morning and uh, look at four points. 
So, first point is humility through the cross. Humility through the cross. As I, I just mentioned, the second half of this gospel is focusing on the suffering way of the Messiah. That the path of glory is through suffering. The cross shapes discipleship. All it's, is under its shadow. All, all is under its shadow. And, and the lens in which we see the world is, is shaped through the cross. But also undergirds everything. It is the foundation for why we do what we do and why God has called us to live in such a way. So the cross is at the center of our very discipleship. How we live life, everything we do and say. And this, this here is the second time he told him what his mission was going to be. And as, you, as we read, I don't know if you picked up on it, but he says he didn't want anyone to know. He says he pulled them aside and he taught them. He didn't want anyone to know. This is, the, this is called the messianic secret, which we, we've mentioned before. He wants his disciples to know and to understand. And yet, these, these guys who have been with, the, with him for three years, they still don't get it. They still don't understand it. They still can't comprehend what, what he means by this. Even though he's told him two times already, he's about to tell him a third time. I want you to notice one more thing, is that, he, is that Mark uses the word teaching here. He could have said, Jesus said to them, Jesus told them. There's, there's many words, but he actually uses the word teaching here. And the reason is because this is prophecy fulfilled. He's teaching them how to read the Old Testament. He's teaching them how to look for what the Messiah, what the Son of Man was supposed to be like. Specifically, Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. He wants them to see that aspect of the coming Messiah as well. So he's teaching them, this is what the Son of Man, this is what the Messiah has come to do. This is what I'm about to do. I mean, but how could they not understand? The last chapter, Mark makes it, it a note in 832, that he says he told them plainly. Jesus spoke in parables. We, we know he spoke in parables, but here he told them plainly and explicitly what he came to do, what he was going to do, and yet they continued to not understand. He says the Son of Man. He uses the term Son of Man, taken from Daniel 7, 14. I'm just going to read that verse. Just listen in. This is the picture they had of the Son of Man. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. That was the picture they had in their head. That was what they were expecting of the Son of Man. They only saw glory. They missed the suffering through the glory. They got Daniel 7. They missed Isaiah 53. They didn't get the whole picture. That's why they didn't understand. They, they couldn't comprehend this. They were too preoccupied with being the greatest and arguing about being the greatest. Tell you what, it was great to follow Jesus at this point. 
They'd been with him for three years. This was the rabbi who taught with authority and did miracles. The crowds were gathering under this rabbi to learn from him. And guess what? We're in the inner circle. We, we get to be with this guy. How great is that? You can see the, the, the pride bolstering up, the, the greatness. I'm on the inner circle of, of the greatest teacher Judaism has ever known. I get to be that guy's friend. And as they didn't understand, they, they were afraid to ask. They were afraid to ask, probably because what just happened to Peter when he asked uh, last chapter. That was, that was no doubt in their minds. They were in the inner circle. They thought they understood. Then Jesus says something that totally turns their world upside down. Totally flips their worldview of what greatness should be. That brings us to our second point. Greatness through humility. Greatness through humility. Read verses 33 through 35 with me. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant all. Now he asked them what they were discussing. He, he knew what they were discussing. He either heard them through earshot or, as we saw earlier, he, he, he knows their hearts. He can see their hearts. So either way, Jesus is, is asking to, to provoke an answer from them, though, though he fully knows what's going on. And they kept silent. Why do they keep silent? They're embarrassed. They're embarrassed about arguing. They, they know they shouldn't be arguing about this. But just picture it for a minute. Peter, no doubt this is Peter. James and John arguing because they just got to go up to the Mount of Transfiguration. They're, they're the inner circle of the inner circle, these three guys. And I can just imagine John standing there talking with Peter and James and saying, guys, it's got to be one of us three. Like, we have to be, it, it's one of us three. We're the greatest. We're the inner circle. But Peter, Peter I can't be you, Peter. You just tried to rebuke Jesus, and, and he called you Satan. It, it's not you, so it's me or James. Plus, we're, we're the sons of thunder. Like it, something like that, I'm sure, it took place. Going on here, is the, they're arguing who's going to be the greatest, and, and we, we see a little bit later that, yeah, James and John say, can you sit at your right and left hand? So maybe that is the discussion they had. But either way, they, they knew... <laughs> This is not a discussion they should be having. Followers, the Son of Man, the Messiah, acting more like an entourage, deciding who was, who was the greatest. Jesus shocks them and says, well, if you want to be greatest, like you're arguing about, you need to be last. You need to take the least position. And you need to serve everybody. You want greatness? That's how you get greatness. Doesn't say not to pursue it. He just is redefining it for them. And we have, we have a pretty good idea of what greatness is. 
But who are the last? Who are the least positioned in life? Well, all, all throughout human history, it's been the slaves. It's been those who live their lives serving others. This is why it's offensive to call someone the help. Right? We, that is a very lowly position that we just don't like to go there. Yet it's the type of lifestyle, it's the type of life that Jesus lived, to serve all. He came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many, a life we're also called to live. And he gives them an example of what this statement looks like by taking a child and bringing him into the circle of where they are, their inner circle, holding his arms around him and saying, this, this child is welcome here. Now, our, our understanding of children now is very different than the first century Greco-Roman world, where children were the last. Children were insignificant. Their opinion didn't matter. They were dismissive. We see this in the Gospels all the time. The disciples even trying to stop children to come to Jesus. No, let them come. They were the most insignificant. So he brings them in and he says, I want you to receive them. Receive them. And when you receive them, the most insignificant, do you know who you're actually receiving? The most significant. The one who sent me. When you receive the least, you actually receive the greatest. He's turning it upside down. So, Though we receive the insignificant, and it is good, it is for their benefit, it is ultimately to get God himself. It is ultimately to receive God himself. Now, I want to give two examples. There may be more, but there are two people who are explicitly said to be the greatest. Jesus, as we know. The other one is John the Baptist. In Matthew 11, Jesus calls John the Baptist the greatest born of woman. Why did Jesus say this about John the Baptist? John the Baptist, called the greatest by Jesus, because his entire ministry was to highlight Jesus. He was to prepare the way for the Messiah. For his followers to decrease, Jesus' followers to increase. That was what he was here to do. He didn't go in a corner and hide, right? He didn't talk softly with his head down, thinking his opinion doesn't matter or what he says doesn't matter. That's not what true humility is. He was out there every day, loud. He was present. He wasn't hiding away. That's not what it is. He wasn't seeking for man's approval. That's what John the Baptist did. Obviously, he called the religious leaders of the day a brood of vipers. He, he didn't care much for their approval. He was looking for the approval of one only. And his whole ministry, to glorify and to highlight the one that was to come behind him. The one who he was unworthy to even untie his sandals. Jesus, the other example. In John 13, the night before the cross, Jesus takes his disciples right after supper. And he goes over and he grabs a basin of water and a towel and he wraps it around his waist. And then he sits down and he washes his disciples' feet. 
in this time period, everyone wore sandals, and they walked a lot, and not concrete streets. It was dirty. This was not something people liked to do to themselves, wash their feet. And yet, here he is, taking the form of a servant to his friends and washing their feet to help them to understand what was coming next. The cross was coming next, where he was ultimately going to lay down his life for them. And so he gives them this preview of what true greatness looks like, the humility of a servant. And then we have the cross. The greatest act of humility the world has ever seen, that the Son of Man, the one who would rule and reign, would come as a suffering servant. This is what Isaiah 53 was all about. The Messiah was to undergo this great act of humiliation. God, the creator, hanging on a cross by his creation. Paul picks this up in Philippians. Philippians 2, he says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is what last to first looks like. Least to greatest. He took the form of a servant of all and he humbled himself to be last of all. He served us by becoming our substitution for the wrath of God. The wrath that was rightly meant for us diverted to him, absorbed by Jesus himself. As the atonement lamb served Israel by becoming that vicarious substitution for the penalty of sin, so did the lamb of God for us. Not only did he serve us in this way, but he was deemed the last of all. The one who hung on a cross was not seen to die an honorable death. Though, though we look at it like that today, that is not how they looked at it then. The cross was for the worst and the least criminals. Hanging there in humiliation. That was the position that Jesus took. And because of this, God gave him the name above all names. So that anyone who confesses with their mouth and believes in their heart will be saved in his name. And this morning, if, if you have not believed in his name yet, Jesus, the Messiah, the one who humbled himself for you, that you might be exalted on the last day, oh, we urge you to trust in him now. To trust in that name above all names. That, uh, that one day everyone will confess. Eventually, Everyone will confess his name, that he is Lord of Lords. Do it now. Trust, trust in him now. The one who came to die a criminal's death in order to forgive your offenses against God himself and to reconcile you to the Father.
I'll trust in that name. Trust in that person. So when Jesus tells his disciples that if they want to be great, they must be a servant of all, and they must be last of all, he knew quite well what that meant. He knew that in less than a week. That was going to be him. Displaying in front of the world to see. They're called here to receive a child. The most insignificant in the community. A call, really, to receive all who are insignificant. Which brings us to point three. Receiving others as a way of humility. Verses 38 to 41. Read with me in verse 38. John said to them, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Jesus said, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Just after telling them to receive the most insignificant little child, John comes and does this. They reject this man. Why? Because he's not a part of their circle. He's not a part of their group. Jesus says, if he proclaims my name, if he glorifies my name, don't stop him. Encourage him. He's proclaiming my name so that people might be saved. And these disciples, knowing their Old Testament, the story of Joshua and Moses had to come to mind. In Numbers 11, where, where God had assembled 70 elders with Moses. And, and while that was happening, there was two men in the camp prophesying. Not part of this group of 70. And they're over here prophesying. And Joshua comes up to Moses, and he says to him, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. That was Moses' response. Joshua and John both saying, Stop these guys, because they're not a part of our group. Yet Moses and Jesus saying, no, no, encourage them. Encourage them. You can see maybe why especially hard for, for, for John and these disciples to see what was going on because they had just failed at casting out demons. Chapter 8, they tried and they said, why can't we do this? And yet, here's a guy who, who is not part of their group who doesn't have the same education, maybe not holds the same doctrines, right? He's not part of the, the, the club. He's not the inner circle. He's not a, a friend of Jesus like we're a friend of Jesus. But he's somehow doing the very thing that we couldn't do. He's exercising a gift in a way that we can't do it. So let's stop him. That's the thought process here. The principle is... Celebrate others. Sadly, this is not an easy task. But celebrate others' gifts. When you see someone who has a gift, and I'll say this, especially 
Okay, especially when that gift is close to your gifting, it's exponentially more difficult. <laughs> a gift that you want, a gift that you, you, you're seeking, becomes even more difficult. But celebrate their gift because, because their, their, their skill, their ability to do something is truly a gift from God. Celebrate that. Don't withhold it. Don't try to stop them. Encourage them. Celebrate others' successes. Gavin Ortland uh, wrote, you guys might recognize the name Ortland. He's Ray Ortland's son. Uh, he wrote a book on humility. And actually in this book, he talks about his brother Dane's book, uh, Gentle and Lowly, which I think many of you may have read. Uh, but he, he knew, so a lot of Ortland's, a lot of success, a lot of books. He knew, Gavin knew that that he could potentially get a little bit jealous and prideful over the success of his brother's book. So he knew that could happen. Right? To dismiss that is not, not wise. It, it can happen to any of us. So he knew this, and so what he did is he intentionally prayed for the success of his brother's book. And he said, he said God, I want it to be the, the most popular book out there. I want everyone to own five copies. And obviously exaggerating, but but he truly did want that. He said, when I prayed, I wanted these things. But I had to guard my heart against knowing and seeing why are my books not as high on Amazon as his. So he, so he, so he cut it out at the beginning, and he prayed for it, and he meant it. This is, this is my brother. I want him to succeed. Because guess what? We're fighting for the same cause. We're fighting for the same cause. We're on the same team. At the end of this pericope, verse 41, Jesus says that anyone who gives a cup of cold water will not lose his reward. The significance here is a cup of cold water is a very simple thing to do, a very simple act of service. But if you're doing it in the name and the love and example of Jesus Christ, then you will not lose your reward. It is not the showy, big things like uh, Mr. Beast philanthropy. I don't know if you guys heard of him on YouTube. It, great. Like, yes. Okay. But also a, a cup of cold water if you're doing it in my name. It's the disposition of the heart that receives that reward. Not the flashiness of the service, but the disposition of the heart. Humility is found, so far we've seen, is found in and shaped by the cross. Greatness is rooted in humility. Humility is found in receiving others. And lastly, point number four, the pursuit of humility is not for your sake only. It's not for your sake only. Read with me verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Two things I want to I point out here real quick is, is little ones and, and sin. So little ones. What does he mean by little ones? Absolutely he can mean children, right? Children we already 
saw were insignificant. But also, this expands to those who are new in the faith. Those who really don't under, have an understanding of, of, of doctrine and, and theology, and it's not developed, and they're new to the faith. So that's what we have in mind here, is, is little kids, and those are new, newer to the faith. And secondly is the word sin. You guys might have a footnote in your Bibles. Uh, the word here for sin is not the normal word for sin. It's, it's a different Greek word. So stumble, it, it, it might say at the bottom stumble, falling away from the faith. So the idea is do not make one of these new believers or someone who doesn't have much of an understanding in Christianity, do not make them fall away from the faith by what you, what you say or what you're doing. Keep guard on that. Better to have a millstone around your neck. And, and during this time, there's a guy named Judas, a Galilean, not the Judas we know, who rose up in a revolt and had many followers, and the Romans did this to them. They, they tied big millstones, big bricks around their neck, and they threw them in the water. And so that, that picture, that imagery is, is in their heads, and he's saying, that is better than making an insignificant uh, new believer, someone who doesn't have a developed understanding of Christianity, stumble and fall away from the faith. That's how serious Jesus is taking this. Now, this, this could be teaching something contrary. This is kind of other, the other side of the comment earlier, where you, you can't just say anything in Jesus' name, right? We, the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses use Jesus' name, right? That, that this isn't the circle that we're talking about. Okay, that's, that's not the same. You, they're, they're teaching something that we believe would, would make people fall away from the true, the true faith, the orthodox faith of Christianity inside the household of God. Or it could be a certain behavior. As, as people imitate you, which is, which is why Jesus says the next part about the cutting off of hand and eyes and foot. It's because how you live matters. People watch, especially the little ones. The little ones are watching. Jesus mentions three body parts. He mentions the hand, the foot, and the eyes, which could easily represent, you know, what we do, where we go, and what we see, what we're looking at. Those all matter, and the little ones are seeing that. How you live is not just about you. When we say we're Christians, we become a representation of Christ. Christians, little Christs. Okay, we, we, are, we are an image. Whether we like it or not, that, that is what we are, and, and people are watching. And so our personal holiness, yes, it is for our benefit. The will of God is our sanctification. First Thessalonians. But, but it's also very important for those looking on. And so that humility in thinking of others in that way, that, that's, that's true greatness, and that's true humility, to know that my personal holiness and sanctification, my willingness to go to these extremes for someone else's sake, yeah, that's the humility. That's the humility Jesus is talking to them about here. Is he, to answer the question too, is he calling for self-mutilation? Is he saying, you're sinning with your eyes, pluck them out, cut off your hand. 
Now, no, uh, that wouldn't help, right? We know it's the heart that causes us to sin. But I, I, I will say, like, if the hand was the actual thing to cause you to sin, so I would say yes. Then it, that would be the thing to cut off. If that did. It doesn't, okay? It's, it's our heart. Be clear. It's our heart that causes us to sin. But Jesus is saying, go to this extreme. Do this. That's how serious sin is in your life. And that's how serious it is that the little ones would look at you and see that kind of life lived. He's calling for spiritual mortification, which I don't know if it's any less painful. There's an illustration, uh, uh, there's a movie, I can't think of the movie, I can see the scene, I couldn't think of the movie, but it doesn't matter. There's a scene in a movie where there's this, there's this prisoner and this guy gives him a, a dilemma, gives him an offer and says, take this knife and if you cut off three of your fingers, you're free to go to live. So the guy takes the knife and he puts it there and he's sweating and he keeps trying and he can't do it. He can't do it. They end up, they end up killing him. He chose death over the pain of a wound. He chose death over the pain of a wound. It is a wound. It is painful to mortify sin. But let us not choose death over the pain of mortifying sin in our life. That's what Jesus is getting at here. When we set our mind on the flesh, that's death. Let's, let's work to mortify to kill, to get rid of that sin, and let's work seriously hard at it, as if it was cutting off a hand or an eye or a foot. It is that important. It's painful, and little ones watch, but, but do the painful thing. Do the painful thing. Jump down to verse 49 with me. Very, it's a very strange verse. Jesus says, for everyone will be salted with fire. To simplify it, it, it really just means suffering. It means everyone who are gonna, who's going to follow me is going to go through some sort of suffering. The Old Testament imagery, that's what he's using. It was salt and fire. For all the sacrifices, it was salt and fire. So that's, that's too what you're going to experience. Paul's saying the same thing in Romans 12. Live a life, uh, live your life as a living sacrifice. So that's, that's explanation of that verse. And then let's, let's end it here in verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. He's referring back to verse 34 where they were arguing, and there was disunity, and he's saying preserve unity and holiness. That's what this is about. By your holiness, you will preserve unity. You want to be great? Be a servant. And be okay with being the least. Being in the last position. Receive others. Care about others stumbling or potential stumbling. Then you won't be fighting about that kind of greatness. Then you'll have unity. Then you'll have peace among yourself. 
I want to conclude this morning with four application points. Disclaimer, I took a few of these from Gavin's book, okay? Kind of made them my own, but took them from his book. The first one, well, they're really good. So the first one, practice gratitude. Practice gratitude. Meditate and reflect on the things you're grateful for. There are a lot of things to be grateful for. And start, start small. If you don't know, if it's hard, start small. Uh, be thankful for your cup of coffee in the morning. I, think about it. Think about, I, don't know, I know pretty much everyone here is, but reflect on it. Like the process that across the world, they're growing this coffee and then they pluck it. And Truman knows a lot about this. They pluck it, right? And they dry it and then they roast it and they grind it. And it pre- There's a whole process to it. And it ends up in your cup and you enjoy it. Maybe several times a day. But seriously, being grateful for that, it, it produces humility. It, it, it's gratitude in these little things. How about the Bible? For 1,500 years, it had to be hand-copied. It had to be remembered. And it was written down, and it was preserved in different languages. 1,500 years before it was mass-produced. And for the majority of history... People didn't have this. All 66 books compiled in one book. And we can pick any version we want of it. It's pretty amazing. Being grateful that you have God's word compiled together for you. It's been preserved through a lot of blood. A lot of people's lives for this book in your hands. That produces humility. The second is to embrace weakness. Embrace weakness. It teaches us to rely on others and ultimately to rely on God to, to do anything. Embrace your weakness. You, you're human, right? We, we live in a corrupted world. Yeah, we, we are weak, right? We have weaknesses. You have limitations. Embrace those. Third one is to laugh at yourself. Don't take yourself too seriously. Take your work. Take your sin that is serious. Take those things seriously. But, but know who you are. You're, you're going to have blunders. Uh, you're going to have embarrassments. It's a part of life. Don't let humility be quenched in those moments. Don't let, don't let pride come up in those moments. Just, just laugh at yourself. It's okay to do that. And lastly, number four. This one's longer than the other very brief ones. Intentionally build up and pray for success for those who you find yourself in competition with. Those who you're finding self in competition, maybe their gifts are the same, maybe their successes, their field is the same. Uh, whatever it is, pray for their success. Intentionally pray for their success. As parents, as parents, you can find yourself wanting to see other parents maybe expressing weakness. This is a thing that we like. I, my kids are going crazy. I, I kind of like it when their kids are going crazy. <laughs> pray that they don't go crazy. Want them to succeed. Even if you're feeling in that area, you're not. Pray for them to do so. Second one is as employees. As employees, seeing and hearing of others' promotions and raises and advancement, and yet you continue to stay in the same position at your job, or worse yet, you got fired from your job. 
it's really, really easy that the moment someone mentions their promotion, you, you go to, but I don't have that. Why am I not getting that? It's a really easy thing to do, so guard, guard yourselves against that. And just lastly, in general, when you see pride creep in, when anyone else has success in an area that may cause some sort of pride or competition to come in, pray for success for them and, and mean it. And keep, continue to pray and ask God that you would mean it. This is, this is going to be difficult, but pray for their success. You're on the same team as you pursue true greatness to advance the kingdom of God. Pray with me. Oh Lord, we are so grateful. Even though our hearts can, can go into places where we see our lack, we see what we don't have, I pray that we would be grateful for what we do have, Lord. And no matter what our circumstances or what we do, we always have your son who, who no, nothing can separate us from the love of Christ Jesus. So I, I pray that we would cling to that. I pray that we would seek humility, uh, that we would know that, that you are calling us to greatness. You are calling us to a great life, but that is a life of, of service. That is a life of taking the last position, being okay with it, because knowing that, that our God and our King did the very same thing for us. So by your Spirit, Lord, be with us. Help us to do these things that we cannot do on our own strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.